Two Suitcases, A Traveling Retirement by Winifred Kramer and Jonathan Haas. All rights reserved. This book is read by the authors. Dedication for the Lywindas, Amanda, Lyra, and Lillian. Chapter 1, The Beginning After the End. How do adventurous archaeologists retire, abandon the safety and security of a house in the Chicago suburbs, throw most everything to the wind, and set off on a trip to see the world? For 10 years? We are now halfway through that decade of travel, and it has been an absolutely fantastic experience. Two Suitcases is our story, both how-to and travelogue. We share the process of retiring, planning our travel, and some of the great times and stupid mistakes we've experienced along the way. We want to share how we got on the road and our adventures since then. Some of us dream of retirement. Some of us dread the notion. And others don't consider it at all. We belong to the first of these groups. We both had fulfilling careers in archaeology, anthropology, and museums, and we thoroughly enjoyed what we did from beginning to end but also knew that we didn't want to die with our boots on. We wanted to go out and see as much of the world as we possibly could. Our jobs allowed us a lot of travel, both within the United States and abroad, and we knew that this was something we could do and enjoyed very much. A professional conference in Barcelona convinced us it was the greatest city in the world and that we wanted to spend more time there. An archeological project in Peru teased us with the treasures of exploration in South America friends in foreign places demanded to be visited. Canal boats in France introduced us to the decadent joys of tasting great wine and eating great food. To realize our goal of seeing the world in retirement, we arrived at a two-stage retirement plan. The first stage is 10 years of active travel. The second stage of undetermined length reflects the realities of growing older and will be somewhat quieter will find a home base in the United States and take somewhat less frequent and more targeted trips. We are now in the fifth year of stage one and to our surprise and delight, it's going pretty well. On a beautiful day in May, 2015, we set off from LaGrange, Illinois. The car was packed for driving to California. Our Prius was a bit more crowded than we expected. Jonathan took the car to the Toyota dealership again at 7 a.m., returning home with a new headlight in time for us to be on the road by 11. The Midwest is at its greenest in May. We spent the day crossing Illinois and Iowa, arriving in Council Bluffs, Iowa, across the river from fabulous Nebraska. We passed a coffee truck. At the time, we wished he had a spigot on the side and some go-cups. We stopped at the edge of the Missouri River just in time to have a look and find that Los Fest was on, including the Taste of Omaha. Since it was raining and involved a shuttle bus across the river to Omaha, we passed up the opportunity to go to the festival. We did see the bridge with four huge spiky sculptures on each side that goes over Route 80. Strange and interesting. We considered going for a close-up look at the water tower shaped like a coffee pot. Oh yes, you ought to give Iowa a try. That drive to Council Bluffs was five years ago, and we were totally ready to leave Chicago. We've been on the road in phase one of our travels since then. People have asked 
for the details of how we left our working lives behind for a life of travel. After many years in one place, we downsized from a large house to a storage unit and two suitcases. We spend eight months on the road, living a month at a time in different places, exploring the city we are in or the countryside around us. Every winter, we spend four months in South America, enjoying the austral summer and recharging our batteries for the next season of travel. If you'd like to do what we do, read on for our blueprint. If you think we're crazy, just come along for the ride. Retiring can be scary or exciting. Has your career been satisfying? Are you happy with what you were doing for a living? How are your finances, children, grandchildren, your health? Many factors come into play as you consider your later years when you no longer have to get up and go to work every morning. Many people today, at least in the US, choose not to retire. They simply continue doing what they're doing until some factor, such as, well, death, resolves the issue. Other people can't wait to retire and do so as soon as they possibly can. What to do after you retire is a multi-sided issue. For some, the idea of staying in your pre-retirement home, becoming more involved in your community, gardening, hobbies, that's a plan made in heaven. Others can't wait to leave town. The two of us, Winifred and Jonathan, are in the second category. Here's how we made it happen. Who we are. Early on in our marriage, we decided that we were going to retire with enough time to enjoy the experience. Both of us are archeologists and our careers in archeology span were literally dreams come true. The first years of our post PhD lives were spent in a variety of academic and non-academic jobs, all within archeology. span Longer term stability came when we both got great jobs in the Chicago metropolitan area at a university and a museum. We bought a big old farmhouse in the western suburbs where we raised our three lovely daughters. When we moved in, retirement was far in the future. Over the years, that horizon started to come closer. We have now been married for over 35 years, throughout which we have always worked together professionally, and we continue to get along well on all levels. Yet we are chalk and cheese, different in many ways. The only thing we've ever argued about is our children, but who hasn't? Winifred is a putterer. That's me. I will wash dishes, but I prefer a dishwasher. I managed most of the outdoor gardening around our large yard before we retired. I repair lamp sockets, and I dream of learning to make marbled paper. My retirement hobby is collecting beach glass then making jewelry and other art projects, and writing mystery novels. Jonathan loves to visit markets and to cook. When we had a garden, he planted regular and heirloom tomatoes, and we had enough for a truck garden. His main retirement hobby continues to be cooking, with an emphasis on the food of the place we are in at the moment. He likes to have friends over so that he can make a somewhat more complicated and interesting dish. He has also become more gregarious and enjoys chatting with people he meets along the way. He offers to take pictures of couples and families. 
How have our different personalities helped us get where we are and to the retirement we wanted? Part of the answer is that despite our differences, we listen to each other and try to be flexible while encouraging the other to take some chances. We compliment and suggest rather than criticize. That is how we began saving for retirement when we were first married. Jonathan is adamant that Winifred is responsible for our financial stability and ability to travel. From the very beginning, she was quite persuasive that we simply had to save as much money as we could at every juncture in order to A, pay for our daughter's education and B, afford a reasonable retirement. In spite of his inclination to spend every penny the moment it came in, Jonathan bowed to her common sense. As a result of the joint efforts, we put the girls through college with no debt and we built up a retirement fund that allows us to travel around the world. Our first step in retirement planning led us to consider buying a slow-moving boat and sail around the world. Though it didn't pan out, as we discussed below, we had a wonderful time exploring the trawler world. We learned early on in this endeavor that we had to have a system of give and take, a lesson that stood us in good stead long after the boat was far past our rearview mirror. We met too many people while boating who were alone because their spouse was going to catch up at the next port. One person can't make all the decisions. Our retirement is a joint effort. For people who react with, I could never. Wait just a minute before you finish that sentence. Planning your own retirement means developing a strategy that prioritizes all the things you want to do within the context of your budget, health, individual and joint needs and desires. If one of you hates the ocean, a yacht is probably not the best idea. You both aren't going to get everything you want in retirement, but by each contributing to the list of goals, we found it not all that hard to come up with a mutually negotiated approach to our retirement. For example, Winifred jokes that since her children are spread out and she has no grandchildren, she is free to travel until that situation changes. Jonathan, on the other hand, feels that grandchildren present no such restriction. Since we have no grandchildren, there is no current dilemma, and we both feel confident that if and when grandchildren do come along, we'll just deal with our different perspectives. If you already have grandchildren, you may alter how long you are gone each year or where you travel to make seeing family a priority. There's no one way to do things. We started our retirement planning at least 15 years before the actual event. We talked a lot about what we wanted to do in a two-stage retirement, 65 to 75 and 75 plus. These two stages were heavily influenced by our experiences with our parents. Jonathan's Parents Jonathan's parents, Eleanor and Les, both painters, retired to the tiny town of El Rito in northern New Mexico, where they each had studios and could paint to their heart's content. That plan worked perfectly until their mid-70s, when they physically began to wear out, and the closest doctors were a 45-minute drive away. The hospital in Santa Fe was well over an hour's drive. 
Increasingly, they were on the road for hours every week at the same time that their driving skills were deteriorating. We tried to offer alternatives to continued life in El Rito, but they rejected the restrictions that life would have anywhere else. Change came when Les drove out of the El Rito post office into traffic and was struck and totaled the car. He was largely uninjured, and fortunately, Eleanor was not with him. A new car was not in the budget, and frankly, we would not get them one. It just wasn't responsible. Despite their desires and after a long search, they moved into an assisted living facility in Santa Fe. They hated it. It was too small. They didn't know anyone. They didn't like the people they met. They didn't go to the cafeteria to meals. Their little dog pooped on the carpet. They couldn't figure out how to use the facility's transportation system or Santa Fe's public transportation. They were just miserable all the way around. Eventually, they could not stay in assisted living and had to be moved into a nursing home. Eleanor only lasted a few months, while Les lasted a bit longer, as a shell of his former self. For better or worse, his development of dementia meant he was never fully aware that Eleanor was gone. This wrenching experience included Jonathan's flying to Albuquerque every month and driving to see his parents, first in El Rito and then in Santa Fe. Most visits were spent patiently explaining what they should be able to do and why this wasn't happening, or listening to complaints about their surroundings. By putting off the move into town as long as possible, they arrived in town at an age when adapting to a new life simply took too much effort. They needed friends, but didn't seem to connect with their neighbors. They needed to get around town, but didn't want to learn how to take the bus. From our perspective, they waited too long to relocate from an isolated community to a town with services they needed, and they ultimately were unable to adapt. Winifred's parents, George and Jeannie, had a somewhat parallel but much less harrowing experience. Their first stages of retirement was to a farm outside Ticonderoga, northern New York. George retired from the paper manufacturing business and really wanted to run his own farm, raising cattle and making maple syrup. He had a small herd of cattle and made some additional money renting out the fields for hay production. It was never seen as a major source of income, but as a very serious hobby. Jeannie kept busy as a farm wife was heavily involved in the local theater scene and made sure they both went off regularly on trips around the world. She probably would have preferred to retire to an apartment in New York City, but adapted well to life in the country. Again, as they aged, their health required more attention and consistent medical care required a great deal of driving. Gradually, George gave up on the cattle and then maple syrup production as it just became too much work and wasn't as enjoyable as it once was. After almost two decades on the farm, they moved into a condo development near Syracuse where they could be much closer to doctors, their son Tim, and his wife Margaret. 
everything was closer and there was a lot less upkeep in the new place. There was still room for children to visit and they kept up world travel, though on a less busy schedule. George passed away after a few years in the East Syracuse place and soon thereafter, Jeannie moved into an independent living facility where she is an active community member, going on local trips, seeing the Met Opera in HD rather than in Manhattan, enjoying a glass of wine with dinner and chatting with her new friends. She's a person who has always been able to talk to people and easily makes new friends everywhere she goes, even in the checkout line at the supermarket. From Jeannie and George, we learned that planning pays off. Though they both missed the farm when they moved to Syracuse, their new house had a view over a small lake. George could look out the window over the water, which he loved. Jeannie had a shorter drive to shop and see doctors, and they both made new friends in their new neighborhood. They did continue to drive well past the age we felt was safe. Our lesson from them was to relocate to a setting with public transportation. Two-stage retirement. With the retirement experiences of our parents, as well as talking with friends and witnessing other families, we emerged with the idea of a two-stage retirement. The first stage is between the ages of 65 and about 75, give or take a few years. This is the active stage when we have health and energy to do almost anything, short of Olympic athletics. Travel, pursue active hobbies, learn new skills, follow lifelong academic learning fantasies, whatever the hell we want. The second stage, from basically 75 to kicking the bucket, is the less active stage. No, it's less active, not inactive. Such a two-stage retirement allows for a couple of things. First, it allows us to take full advantage of our resources and health to follow our hearts and do things we couldn't accomplish while working full-time. The second stage will give us time to settle in to some kind of assisted or independent living facility, learn our local area, figure out cabs, buses, trains, shuttles, etc., find our way to the market, drugstores, doctors, shops, and make new friends. We always need to get acquainted with up-to-date computers and technologies, too. These things may seem comparatively simple to us in our 60s, but they will get more and more complex and challenging as we move through our 70s and into our 80s. Jonathan has vowed to his three daughters to give up his driver's license upon turning 75. This is not because he won't be able to drive at 75, but because if he forces himself to stop, he will have to figure out how to use public transportation. Then, when he is really too old to drive, he believes that point is 80 for all drivers. He will know how to get around and not feel bereft of his beloved car and isolated from the world. Winifred has not yet made that vow, but when she sees how much fun Jonathan is having on the buses and trains, she'll relent. Having agreed on a two-stage retirement, we then had to figure out how and where we would spend the two stages. 
The second stage is somewhat simpler, at least in general terms. Many people want to be near their children and grandchildren, but in our case, our daughters are spread across the United States, two in California and one in Illinois. We feel free to pick where we want to be on our own criteria. As we talked it over, we both heartily agree that we want to be near a university because of the vibrancy and range of activities present on any campus in America. We have both spent a lot of time on university campuses and are quite comfortable with lots and lots of young people and enjoy the prospect of lectures, concerts, plays, sports, whatever. We also agreed that we wanted to be somewhere reasonably warm near the ocean, and we need to be somewhere under the control of the United States government in order to take advantage of Medicare and our health insurance. Yes, all of this narrows down our options, but we feel it still leaves open many, many possibilities on both coasts, the Gulf Coast, Puerto Rico, even the U.S. Virgin Islands. That decision has yet to be made, and we still have time to do it. The last year or so of stage one will probably be devoted to exploring these options. Stage one begins, plan A, also known as the boat fiasco. Now we come to the interesting part, what to do during stage one. As we began to talk about this more than 15 years before retirement, we agreed on one key factor. We both wanted to engage in world travel. How was a little fuzzy but the vision of visiting places we had never been before was crystal clear. We both have done quite a bit of world travel, singly and together over our lifetimes, but the siren call of distant places always haunts the backs of our minds. As we vaguely mulled over options, out of the blue came an insane idea. What about buying a boat and sailing around the world? Neither one of us had any serious boating experience aside from scooting around Lake George in George's little outboard or Winifred's occasional sails on a one-person sailboat. How the idea of a boat came up, neither of us remember, but the idea resonated loudly with both of us. Searching the internet quickly provided some information about our options. Sailing with real sails did not seem up our alley. First, it was going to involve a lot of training and a lot of work. The former was possible, but the latter just didn't appeal as a retirement venture. Then there were the accommodations, somewhat small and cramped. Jonathan loves to cook, and the options on a sailboat seemed restricted at best. Looking further, we discovered the newish breed of boat known as a trawler or passage maker. A trawler's a large boat. We looked at boats from 46 to 50 feet. It's powered by a big diesel engine and capable of crossing oceans. They are slow and steady and about as safe as you can make a boat. Reading about these boats and people's adventures on trawlers held romantic appeal for us. The next logical step was to take a dip. We found a small training school on Chesapeake Bay that would provide training on a trawler, and when they felt you were ready, they'd turn you loose for a couple of days on your own on the bay. We can't say that first experience was really fun. It was stressful, the instructor was something of a bully, and we were scared to death of the monster boat. It was a tiny 34-foot one. 
All being said, we'd had our first taste of life on the water in a commodious boat, and we loved it. The dream seemed not only possible, but a solid step closer to reality. Over the course of the next 10 years, we took a boat trip a year. Several of these were on canal boats in France, down the Loire River to Bordeaux, Burgundy, and Brittany. Almost all of these were with a group of very good friends and involved two and three star restaurants, great cooking on board, and lots of wine tasting. These were all grand trips. No, they didn't give us a lot of navigational experience, but believe it or not, they did give us a much better sense of negotiating a boat on the water, backing up, moving into a slip, mooring, steering a straight line, good basic stuff. In between canal trips, we ventured off into the Caribbean. We started on the Gulf Coast of Florida, where Jonathan took a week-long course on boat systems, navigating, and overall managing a boat. Winifred and all three daughters then arrived, and we took a week-long vacation cruising the islands off the coast of Florida. We anchored overnight, snorkeled, and more seriously experienced the boating life. No crashing, no groundings, no one overboard. It was great, and the dream was really a step closer. With other family members and by ourselves, we cruised the Bahamas and the British Virgin Islands. Winifred took her own week-long trawler navigating and management course and proudly backed a 46-foot boat into a slip, the ultimate in steering difficulty. In the meantime, we began actually shopping for boats, even to the extent of negotiating a trip to the Philippines, where there were two unusual and exciting boats we wanted to see. We also went to Washington, Oregon, California, and Florida to look at different boats and configurations. By a year out of retirement, we had settled on two boat brands that were suitable to our needs and within our budget. That in turn narrowed our options down to a half dozen actual boats, and we visited all of them. We were within striking distance. The dream was quickly evolving into reality. Only one big obstacle stood in our way, Jonathan's knees. After 45 years of archeological fieldwork, his knees were shot with arthritis, and it was challenging for him to get down on his knees to do anything or to climb up and down stairs and ladders. Both of these are critical requirements on a trawler. You have to get on your knees to service and fix the engine, to haul stuff out of various nooks and crannies, fix electrical systems that run under the steering apparatus. There are ladder-like stairs that lead down into the engine room, into the bedrooms, up to the flybridge, and into the dinghy. Lots and lots of stairs. We are very good friends with another couple of archeologists, and the husband had the same problem with his knees. He had both knees replaced, and the effect was miraculous. He had the use of his legs back, could go hiking and even horseback riding. With great hopes and some trepidation, just after he retired, Jonathan went under the knife, had the knee replacement surgery on both knees. Through tears and gritted teeth, he kept a picture of himself running blithely through meadows, leaping in and out of dinghies, kneeling with ease as he checked the engine oil in the gleaming engine room on his trawler. Weeks passed, the knees were getting better. Months passed, still in physical therapy. Hmm, not so much better. We had focused on only a couple of boats and were ready to pull the trigger, but those damn knees weren't ready to go. A full year of our precious stage one passed 
and his knees were not ready for a boat. Turns out that fully 20% of knee replacement surgeries are not successful and don't provide the promised relief. And Jonathan was one of that 20%. Now what? We spend years and years planning, saving, training for a stage one retirement on a boat moving around the Caribbean over to the Mediterranean and then to Australia, New Zealand, and the South Pacific. Poof, it's all gone up in smoke. Okay, that was something of a down moment. We had to come to grips with the fact that what we carefully planned was not going to happen. Stage one, plan B, world travel. At this point, our friends and family were secretly cheering, as it turns out that no one actually wanted us to give up everything and hit the ocean on a 46-foot trawler. They all imagined us disappearing into the Bermuda Triangle or kidnapped by Somali pirates, even if we weren't going anywhere near Somalia. Rather than falling into a well of gloom, we looked at alternatives and came up with stage one, plan B. If we couldn't travel around in our boat, we would travel by land and air to see the world. We mentally transferred the money from the boat purchase fund into the airfare ticket fund and converted everyday living expenses on the boat, including one hell of a lot of fuel, into living expenses on land. By our calculations, it was going to pretty much even out. Now we found ourselves once again facing a retirement of world travel and our moods perked right up. The biggest challenge we had was figuring out where to go first, then second, third, and so forth. Plan B takes shape, downsizing a lifetime of stuff. In one big way, our retirement differs from that of most people in that we ended our professional careers owning two houses, one in Illinois and one in South America in Peru. The first was our family home in Wheaton where we lived for 24 years while Winifred worked at Northern Illinois University in DeKalb and Jonathan worked at the Field Museum in Chicago. Neither of us had a desire to use this home as a base for periodic trips to different exotic places. Our plan of world travel did not allow us the luxury of retaining the U.S. house and all our treasured possessions. We could not afford to keep an unoccupied house for months at a time. Today, some people might arrange long-term rental of their property or short-term rental using a management company, but we had no experience doing that. And we know from our own short-term rental experience that a reliable manager is essential. It was beyond our abilities to keep the big house. We had always intended to sell our Chicago home. The sale of the house was intended to finance part of the boat purchase. In plan B, those funds would finance our world travel. Before selling the house, we had to greatly reduce our material footprint. As one would expect from a pair of anthropologists, the house was filled to the rafters with years of stuff from antiquing, traveling, and raising children. What do you do with a generation's worth of material goods? Before we put the house on the market, we had to get rid of a lot of our precious belongings. We made the decision to take the plunge and do our, quote, final reduction of material culture. We had both been through the difficult experience of helping our parents winnow down from a large home to a small apartment, and it was not a happy experience. 
Everything has personal value and memories. None of it is disposable. Yet it all can't come with you into either retirement or the grave. In our case, we were looking at paring down from a four-bedroom house to a 46-foot boat. Deciding what to get rid of and how to get rid of it proved to be one of the most stressful and unpleasant periods of our long and happy marriage. We each had different views of what we should keep for the long term. What would we want for stage two retirement, for example? What our daughters might want and what should go? The middle of these, our daughter's desires, was the easiest. We let them each select one or two big pieces of furniture as well as the art they wanted and anything from their respective childhoods, dollhouses, chairs, books, etc. We agreed to hold this stuff in our storage locker for a period of five years, after which we would pare down the size of the storage unit. What to keep and what to let go were extremely difficult decisions to make, and honestly, we did not agree. Jonathan mostly wanted to dump everything and move on. Winifred had a very strong sense of what we should keep. We finally reached an uneasy peace by agreeing to honor the statement, I want to keep this. Once those words were uttered, there was no further argument. In our enthusiasm to board the boat, we decided to downsize while Jonathan's knees were healing. Eight weeks after starting the process, most of our worldly goods were gone. Sidebar, Winifred's take on the process of downsizing. I would downsize differently if I could, taking two years to consider what's personally important, donate more, and find appropriate new homes for things and throw out less. Jonathan is content with the way our downsizing went. I would downsize differently if I could do it over again, taking two years to consider what's personally important, donate more, find appropriate new homes for things, and throw out the rest. Jonathan is content with the way our downsizing went. We learned a lot, but with any luck, we will never have to do the same kind of downsizing again. Like a lot of changes, you learn what you should have done by the time it's all over. Though we completed our downsizing in eight weeks, we had done some preliminaries the previous year, including letting our children select the items they wanted for themselves. Downsizing over two years would have let me spend the first year settling big issues and the second year downsizing, selling, and discarding. Big issues of downsizing start at deciding what you're going to keep and where. Complications begin if you own family heirlooms that you intend to pass on. You need to find out whether these heirlooms are still of interest to the next generation. We read regularly that children of the IKEA era don't want any, quote, brown furniture. If that's the case, you need to decide whether to sell or donate your heirlooms. This can be disheartening if you find that your children don't want bedroom sets, dining room sets, china cupboards, and china, yet neither does a resale shop or auction house. If there is a possibility that a local historical society might be interested in items you have, it will take time to contact them, and if they are interested, provide photos and descriptions and possibly arrange a visit. Once you have an idea of what you want to keep, you need to decide where to store it. If you're keeping a house or apartment, that's settled. 
but if you're going to let your house go, as we did, you will probably need a storage unit. Figuring out where it will be and what your costs will be are also important. Once we settled on a size, we installed metal shelving to make the most of the space and began loading the unit as our downsizing continued. You need time to find the right methods and people to help you downsize. I had sold some items on eBay over the years, but I realized that it would take a very long time to sell more of our household contents and that I would be listing, describing, and packing objects for months. Anyone who uses eBay can tell you that the platform has changed considerably since its early days where individuals sold items to individuals and wonderful deals were to be had. By the time we were downsizing, prices on eBay were wholesale at best. E-sales platforms changed so rapidly that I'm not sure how useful eBay and Craigslist would be downsizing today, just a few years on. Sales depend a lot on where you're located and what you have for sale. There are other platforms you can use as well, with more new ones appearing all the time. Try to get a younger, social media savvy person to suggest what works best in your area. One of my daughters recommends Nextdoor, which provides neighborhood news announcements and advertises items for sale nearby. This might be the solution for bulky items of furniture like a couch or awkward things like a basketball hoop or a soccer goal. Contact resale businesses or a company that does estate auctions. You will need photographs and a sense of what volume of goods you want to dispose of. Don't take recommendations without checking up on them. I wish I'd worked harder to interest our local estate auction house in the contents of our house. I wasn't happy with the outcome of our estate sale. I took the advice of our realtor in hiring a local woman, and I wasn't happy with the advertising, the organization, or the results. But by then it was too late. We made about half of what I estimated, and the leftovers included two-thirds of the contents of the house. The estate sale company was not obliged to take anything that was left, and that was a mistake too. Had I anticipated the volume of stuff that was left over, I would have investigated a sale of the entire contents for a single price, with the buyer taking it all away and selling it or discarding it as they wished. Planning your time during the downsizing process is important, and we learned that you need a lot of flexibility. We planned to live in a rental unit for a month that overlapped with the estate sale and gave us time to clean up and make sure the house was ready. It seemed a waste of precious time to stay around while our house was on the market. We would have to work hard to keep it clean and keep ourselves out of the way. So we decided to return when the house actually sold. We committed ourselves to nine months of travel with a two week interlude to check on things. That worked out reasonably well for us, but others might want to stay closer until the house sells. Again, there are many ways to make downsizing work. With travel plans already made and not having anticipated so many things left over from the sale, we didn't have time to consider what to do and ended up donating a vast quantity of goods that probably were discarded. Our final step was hiring a local company to clear out the scrap wood, old shelves, broken weed whackers, and junk from the basement and garage. Then it was done. 
we reduced our entire household collection to one 10 by 15 foot storage locker and the belongings that would fit into a 2006 Toyota Prius. More on that later. Selling the house. Almost exactly 24 years after closing on our house, we listed it for sale. It was a big step for us. We loved our old house with its hideout under the stairs, radiators, and rambling layout. Our girls did their growing up in this house, and we all have fond memories. At the same time, the girls were gone, and none planned to return to the area, leaving us rattling around like two peas in a bucket. It was time to say goodbye. We had a last Thanksgiving get-together of the whole family and then set to work on selling the old homestead. We made most of the mistakes that you can make, though we did sell it in the end. We interviewed three realtors, as one should, but were swayed by the woman who we were acquainted with who had actually lived in our house. A longtime local professional realtor, she had sold our house to the family from whom we purchased it. That seemed like a serendipitous relationship, so we went with her. It was not a good idea. When someone has lived in a house that you move into and change, they are pretty sure that the house was better when they were living there. I feel that inadvertently, our realtor criticized the property when she should have been promoting it, based on her own nostalgia for what it was like when she was there. We didn't recognize this for quite a while, and in the end, the house was sold, but I wouldn't recommend using a realtor who has lived in your property unless you know a lot about their attitude toward their former home. Our property was large and valuable for that reason. When we had a group of realtors visit and look the house over in 2007, they were sure it would be torn down and a much larger house built on the site. The housing crash of 2008 curtailed that possibility, but we were pretty sure that our land alone was quite valuable and the historic house made it even more so. Perhaps we were so happy in our house that we didn't notice the work that we didn't do to keep it up. We remodeled the bathrooms and a tiny bedroom full of built-ins. We remodeled the kitchen which is now a pleasure to work in, very much a cook's kitchen. We did not add central air conditioning, largely because we were actually away in the summer doing archeological fieldwork. We didn't take the time to replace all the old sash windows with the weights in the corners. By the time of the sale, we had replaced about half the windows, but there were windows that dated from the early 20th century, mid-century aluminum storm windows and some brand new ones. An old house always needs work. And we had a few cracks from settling. We had never finished the basement, which was described as creepy by one realtor, though it merely had stone walls, cement floors, and was divided into a warren of small spaces for storage. One room was full of shelves for storing canning jars. There was room for hundreds of them. These minor issues never bothered us, and we let our oldest daughter rehearse her rock band in the basement, knowing they could do no damage. When it came to selling the house, however, all the improvement we could have made but opted against seemed to emerge like ghosts from the woodwork. Yes, we had added an outdoor deck so that we could barbecue just outside the kitchen. We put a new roof on both the house and the garage. Yet, according to the realtor, there was so much more we could have done.
We had decided against having the driveway paved because the black asphalt would make the north side of the house hotter in the summer. This prudent decision was met with an eye roll by our realtor, who lives in the suburbs with an unpaved driveway. What we had in our favor was a good school district and easy access to the commuter train to Chicago. Our realtor pitched the idea of staging the house, having a professional decorator place appropriate furnishings in each room and give it the look that would attract buyers. We read a bit about the process and decided to give it a try. We agreed to have the lower floor staged for eight months. Naturally, we expected the house to have sold by then. The staging was fine, though it brought a rather contemporary Ikea vibe into the rooms. In a very old house, this may not have been the best approach. We had interviewed a realtor who would have worked with us to use the existing furnishings to stage the house, and we'd decided not to go that direction. In retrospect, perhaps we should have gone that way. The dollar signs in our eyes took a direct hit when we agreed on a price, and that was only the beginning. We'd put the Illinois house up for sale shortly after Jonathan's surgery, and it languished on the market for a year. At the end of the contract for the staging, we opted to end our agreement since it hadn't helped, and we bought some furniture at the local thrift shop to mimic the staging. Our realtor was horrified, but it didn't matter to us anymore. Staging hadn't worked. With the one year on the market date looming, our alternatives all involved returning to live in the house while making upgrades, choosing a new realtor, and rethinking the price. A lot of upgrades were suggested, but there didn't seem to be consensus on which ones would be the magic bullet that both paid for themselves and made the house sell. As we wrestled with this issue, we received a reasonable offer and agreed to the sale. An expat home base. Our second house was purchased to serve as a field headquarters for our archeology span project in Peru. It's a very large place with seven bedrooms, a commercial kitchen, and a dining room that seats 30. It served very well for our crews of archaeologists and students from Peru and the U.S. Our long-term plan was to sell both houses and put the money into the boat purchase fund. As we were coming to grips with the fact that a boat was not in our future, we got the offer on our Illinois house. We were then faced with the next hard decision, keep or sell the house in Peru. We already had a full price offer for the house from someone who wanted to turn it into an upscale hotel. The house has increased a great deal in value over more than 10 years, but we did not need the proceeds for the boat. Furthermore, even though the house is huge and requires a lot of maintenance, the cost of living in Peru makes it relatively inexpensive to maintain. As added incentives, the house is right on the beach and we really enjoy our neighbors. There's lots of space for Winifred's art studio and the huge kitchen is a joy for Jonathan. The large walled yard is filled with indigenous trees, flowers, and a small patch of grass. It's great for our two resident dogs. Another big factor we considered was professional. After 10 years of excavation in South America, 
We have written up a lot of our work, yet there is still a mountain of excavation and survey data that is unpublished and unavailable to our colleagues. If we kept the house and associated library, records, and computer files, we could spend a portion of each year writing up research results. After we crunched the numbers, we found that if we kept the house in Peru and returned each year for a period of four months, we would stay under our targeted monthly budget and significantly increase our budget for traveling the other eight months of the year. Given that summer in Peru is winter in the Northern Hemisphere, we could be South American sunbirds, spending the months of November through February on the warm beach and wandering around the rest of the world during spring, summer, and early fall. We politely declined the offer made on the house. We are still friends with the family who bought another place down the beach and committed to a new life of retirement on the road.